0: 3, and uh, I am excited about what the Lord has for us this morning. I am also hoping I can get through it, and so uh, I feel perfectly fine, as much energy as I ever do, but I cannot get rid of this cough, and uh, so I'm going to do my best to kind of work through and put up with it, if you will, when I do cough, and uh, we'll just kind of work our way through there just a little bit, but uh, Colossians chapter 3 really is a passage we're going to look at uh, verse number 12, uh, beginning at verse number 12, and of course all this comes out of uh, the context of the whole book, certainly the context of the chapter as we've read the first couple of verses, <coughs> Pardon me, and, uh, but verse number 12 down to verse number 17 is something that I pray often uh, as a pastor for our church, and uh, really praying that the Lord would help this to be the spirit of our church, the spirit that we would operate in on a regular basis. And uh, so, because that's something I pray regularly, uh, as your pastor now, I wanted to take uh, one of the very first messages and say, here's what I'm praying that God will help us to, uh, in many ways, continue to be, but also to focus on being, because none of us is quite there, amen? And uh, that we're constantly growing in uh, this area. And really what it is, it's the spirit of a revived church, revived uh, just being that is thoroughly right with God. And so we need this spirit. We have to have the right attitude if we're going to be that. And this really deals with the attitude of the church. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 12, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity." which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Father, I pray that you would... (coughs) Help us as we study. I pray that you would uh, give us the exact thoughts that we need this morning. Help us to make the application to our lives. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know if maybe there's a young man that would uh, be willing to run out and grab a cup of water, but that might help me just a little bit, and uh, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you. I figured that's probably who would jump up when I say a young man. And uh, so thank you very much for that, Brother Shabinski. Um We see here as we jump in that... Uh, Uh, This is a passage certainly that is loaded, probably uh, this is a message that ought to be a two-part message, but I'm going to try to fit it all in this morning and uh, see if we can work our way through uh, fairly quickly. But these verses uh, really are what we ought to strive and labor to be on a regular basis. And so I just want to start by asking you a couple of questions. Number one, do these verses describe your home this morning? Or maybe not this morning, Sunday's a hard day to pick, but what about on a typical morning? Is it filled with forbearing? Is it filled with uh, long-suffering? Is it filled with this kind of a spirit? Because the reality is, (coughs) I'm not even going to say excuse me every time, Uh, the reality is that if we're not living this way on a regular basis, if this isn't the attitude of our home, then it cannot really be the attitude of our church. Maybe we shouldn't say this, I'm probably meddling just a little bit, would it describe your car ride this morning? That might be even more where it really lies, amen? And uh, I don't know about you, thank you very much sir, I don't know about you, but it seems as though uh, Satan likes to attack Sunday mornings and he likes to attack car rides, and uh, we come into church and we're stressed and we're frustrated, and especially if you have younger children sometimes, and uh, we come in and, and we're on edge, and all of a sudden we walk up to the door and we go, hi. Hi. How are you? It's a great morning to be in church, isn't it? And we know how to flip that switch and everything looks wonderful, but in the, the inside, in that heart, we're really not there. And so we're really not talking about, do we act this way, but do we have the attitude that is there? Leonard Ravenhill said, revival is when God gets so t- sick and tired of being misrepresented that he shows up himself. That's what we want, Amen. We want God to meet with us. We want God to show up. We want God to work in a powerful way. So I want you to notice this morning three components that I'm praying will be consistently evident in our church. First of all, I see here a positive disposition. A disposition... really has to do with the outward action. It has to do with your body language. It has to do with uh, the way that you come across to somebody. So how's your disposition? I see here a positive disposition, but it's for a specific reason. Uh, We see here that if we're going to have a right disposition, verse number 12, we need to recognize our position. A proper disposition really should come out of a proper understanding of our position. So what's our position? Well, Paul tells us here... Put on, therefore, now notice the first marker, as the elect of God. Now, I know that word's battled over, and our Calvinist friends might like to take that and misconstrue it just a little bit. But the reality of it is this, that word has this idea. You are chosen by God. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Can you imagine that the God of heaven comes and says, I am choosing you. That's incredible. I mean, if you knew me the way I know me, you would know it's an amazing thing that God would choose me. And probably if we have any humility, all of us could say the same thing. Amen? I mean, we know us. We know our shortcomings. We know how much of a mess we really are. We know the things that run through our mind that we're wise enough not to let anybody else know that it runs through our mind. We know all those doubts and the fears and the frustrations and the things nobody else has any idea. But if we know those, isn't it an amazing thing that the God of heaven who knows every one of those things says, I'm choosing you. Have you ever played basketball or anything like that uh, on a playground where they chose teams? <laughs> you ever been the last one picked? Good, I'm glad some of you know how that feels. Um, no, that's, uh, we've all been there, amen? <laughs> and, and you get down and finally somebody says, all right, you can be on our team, uh, just stand over there, try not to mess things up too bad, it's kind of that, and you, uh, you begin the game and you just kind of feel... <laughs> Nobody really wanted me on their team. And there's nothing worse than that feeling. Aren't you glad, though, that if we could simplify it this way, not trying to uh, do any injustice by simplifying it this much, but aren't you glad that God has chosen us to be on His team? He's chosen us. And He says, I can pick anybody and I can exclude anybody, but I have chosen you. And aren't you glad He doesn't exclude anybody? Whosoever will may come. What an incredible offer from our God that he died on the cross, that his blood paid off all of the sin debt of the whole world. And that he's the propitiation not for our our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He paid the price and he says, now anybody can come and know me as their savior. What a promise. And do you realize that that means those of us who know that truth have the responsibility to tell every other person how they can be on God's team, so to speak. That God has already chosen for them to be saved. That He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We get to carry that message, and we've been chosen to carry that message. So we are the elect of God. God has chosen us. We see our position in Christ. We are chosen, but it doesn't end there. It only gets better. He says... Again, verse 12, as the elect of God, and then he says this word, holy. That is an incredible word. Why is it that on your Bible, if you have a holy Bible, that it reads somewhere, mine is fading quite a bit, but it reads holy Bible. What's holy about that piece of leather? Was it a holy cow? (laughs) I typically don't use that because I don't like to take the uh, attribute, the reigning attribute of God and apply it to a cow, but this is the only place I've found that it fits. It's not that it was a holy cow that the leather came from, amen? amen. What about the pages? It, it's not that the pages came from a holy tree. <laughs> There's nothing special about these pages. There's nothing special about this leather until they are set apart for the use of containing the word of God. And at that point, they become holy. It becomes the holy Bible, the holy word of God. And you know the reality of it is, the Bible tells us that we are to be holy, that we are holy. This is our position in Christ. Now, we are also supposed to be holy as God is holy. That deals with our living, but here Paul's talking about our position, that we have been set apart for the use of God. So first he elected, he chose you, he picked you, he wants you, he cares about you, so you've been chosen, but you haven't just been chosen. Then God said, I'm not just choosing you, I'm choosing you to set you apart. So you come back to the playground, what happens? Well, the teams are picked, and typically the one captain stands over there, and the other captain stands over there, and they start calling out names, and when your name gets called, you don't just stand there, you walk over to that side, and you become part of that team. You know what God's saying? I have chosen you not to just stay where you were before you knew me as your Savior. I've chosen you to be set apart. I've chosen you to be used for my purpose, used for my glory, used to accomplish my will in your life. What an incredible purpose that we have. You know, the world around us is going crazy in large part because they have no purpose. There are young people today, teen suicides for the last several years have been spiking, and they are at all-time highs, and nobody seems to know what to do about it. And you talk to most of those young people, you'll find out that they've come to the place where they've said, life just doesn't seem like it has any purpose. There's no real reason for me to be here anymore, so I might as well just end. it. You know one of the reasons, you know the reason they don't have any purpose? Because they don't understand there's a God in heaven who loves them so much that he chose them and that he died on the cross to save them and he didn't just do that, but then he loved them enough to give them a purpose in life and to set them apart for his use. Now, if we understand who we are in Christ, and we say, I've been chosen by him, and then I've been chosen so he can make me holy, he set me aside, he is using me for his purpose, and that's what I've been chosen for, that is an incredible purpose for our life to have. Life becomes exciting. Life becomes thrilling. Life has purpose now it never had before. Amen? And so all of a sudden we see that, uh, first of all, we're elect, we are chosen. Secondly, we're holy. But notice that next word, and, beloved. Aren't you glad that God didn't just choose you to be on his basketball team, but he chose you to be adopted and born into his family? Oh, that's a thought, isn't it? Adopted because when you adopt, you cannot disinherit. We will never be disinherited. Born because when you're natural born, you have a natural uh, belonging and there is a, a bloodline that connects. And it's his bloodline that connects. We are born into the family of God, and we are adopted into the family of God. What a truth. But it's not based on God saying, oh, I just want what's best for me, though he has every right to do that. He made us. As we heard in Sunday school, he is the creator God, the all-powerful God of the universe. He has every right to say, I am God, I made you, and here's what I want to do with you. But he says, no, 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 I'm God, I made you, here's what I want to do with you. But it's really all based on my love. You're chosen. You've been selected. I've picked you. You've been chosen to be a part of, uh, of something special. You've been chosen to have a purpose. You've been chosen to be a part to me. But then it goes even beyond that. All of that is based on the love of God. Oh, how he proved his love. Amen. There's a song that talks about <clears throat> if God never did anything again other than just dying on the cross for us, then we'd have no reason to ever complain. We don't need anything more to show us the love of God. If that was all that he did was allow us to be saved and go to heaven and not go to hell forever and ever, that is reason enough to serve him. And then you think about all of the multiplied blessings upon blessings upon blessings, the blessing of a family, the blessing of a church family, the blessing of the Word of God. We could go on all day. And you think of the blessings of God. He says, I chose you, and I've set you apart and given you a purpose for life. And it's all based on my love, which was shown on Calvary. The love of God that brought him to that place to shed his blood and lay down his life. But aren't you glad it was only to rise again on the third day and offer to all everlasting life? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I, I don't know if I have heard all of that. I don't know if I died, if I would go to heaven. I don't know for sure that I have eternal life. As you speak of, can I say that it's based on the love of God and he's already dealt with it? He's already dealt with your sin debt. And the reality is that he's offering to you today and he's brought you here today to hear that you can know for sure that heaven's your eternal home. Not based on your goodness, not based on what you've earned, but based on the love of God and the offer that he's given. And so this morning we see that every person who is saved needs to understand and recognize our position in Christ. Now, if we recognize our position in Christ, we've been elected, We've been chosen. We are to be holy. We're set apart. And it is because of the love of God. We are beloved. We're in his family. How can we walk around without being happy? Amen? I mean, how could we possibly walk around in the molly grubs all the time? We may have a bad moment. We may have a bad day. We may have a bad stretch. But the reality of it is when we come back and get into this book and we get into even just this first couple of phrases and we go, wow, look at who I am in Christ. Man, I can't help but have a positive disposition. I can't help but have a joy. I can't help but have a joy that exudes out of my life. So we see that if we're going to have a positive disposition, we have to recognize our position. That's number one. The second part then is we need to respond with passion. You know, God didn't say, all right, good, that's who you are. That's the end. Now Paul's going to help this church with how do you respond to this great love of God. So notice what he says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, who you are. Here's what you're supposed to put on now. Bowels of mercy. Wow. Aren't you glad we don't talk like that now? (laughs) Bowels here. That's the seed of the emotions. The way we would say it in our culture is a heart of love. Bowels of mercies. Aren't you glad that it's almost uh, uh, the 14th and Valentine's Day is coming? Aren't you glad that your husband, ladies, is not going to come up and say, I love you with all of my bowels? (laughs) That would just, I mean, in our culture, that would be very awkward. Amen? Some of you are probably going to do that now. But, uh, I mean, it's just the reality. We don't speak that way now. But that's what he's saying. You need to respond then because you recognize who you are in Christ. You need to respond with all of your heart. And it needs to be a heart of compassion, a heart of mercies. The the word mercies here, uh, it, it carries the idea of intense compassion. So just like Jesus has an intense compassion that brought him to the cross so that we could be a part of his family, then we should have an intense compassion that causes and drives us to live a life that's pleasing to him, to tell others about him so that they can understand the love of God as well. So there's an intense compassion. It's responding with passion. And then not only that, uh, this word, uh, the, the word mercies, the word bowels has the intense compassion. I'm sorry. Uh, mercies is emotion or compassion or sympathy. The word mercies, it deals with the emotional aspect. The word, uh, it, c- the word bowels, it deals with the deepness of that emotional aspect. You know, sometimes we get scared of emotion as independent Baptists. Yeah. But you know, we don't have to be scared of emotion. God created it in us. Yeah. It's okay to walk around and have fun. Aren't you glad we can have fun at church? Yeah, I, I tell you, sometimes I go into churches and it's like somebody died every Sunday. And you walk around and you laugh and you crack jokes and people look at you like, don't you know we're in church? I think, yeah. That's why I'm happy. (laughs) I'm so happy, and here's the reason why. Uh, and, And, you know, we ought to just have a joy that exudes from us. It ought to be an emotional thing. It ought to be that when we sing the songs as we sang this morning, uh, and we sing about how great our God is, that we're not just singing some songs that we know and we're just kind of going through them because we know them and it just kind of flows out without really thinking about it. In reality, we're thinking about something a thousand miles away. There ought to be a deep-seated emotion that explodes from us as we sing those songs. He's going to talk about that in a minute. We're not going to spend much time in verse 16, but that's what he's talking about. This this excitement, this joy that even comes out as we sing to the Lord. It's praising him. And and so we see here that uh, we have to recognize our position. Then out of that, how can we help but respond with passion? And we do all of this, and it brings us to the third part of of point number one. We're almost done with point number one. We realize, see, I told you we have three points this morning. What I never tell you is how many subpoints are under each one of those points. And that way it sounds real good. Amen? We recognize our position, we respond with passion, but then we have to realize our purpose. So what's our purpose? All right, he says holy and beloved, put on bowels of mercies. Then he says, uh, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness long-suffering, uh, we are to have all of these marks and all of these markers, and the first thing we're to do is to display Christ to the world. Do you realize if we go around our world, and we're going to walk through these in just a second, but if we go to our world and we're not kind, we're probably not going to win them to our Savior. And, and so the first, mark, or the first purpose that we have is to go win the world to Christ. That is the duty of the Christian. Do you realize there's only two things that we will uh, not be able to do in heaven that we can do here that, that I can figure out anyway? You could probably figure out some other things you could apply in here, uh, but, but that I can find would be pray. We won't pray anymore. We'll see him face to face, walk by faith, live by faith, however you want to word that, and sin. So why do you think God left us here? There's one other one. I'm sorry, there's three. There's one other one. Win people to Christ. you realize we cannot win anybody to Christ in heaven? I think maybe he left us here to walk by faith and win people to Christ. Because otherwise, if God wanted to, he could do all of the explaining the gospel and spreading it around the world himself. And the moment that somebody got saved, they could just immediately go to heaven. And that'd be more joyful and wonderful anyway, amen? We wouldn't have to mess with all this stuff going on here. But that's not how it works. He leaves us here because he's chosen for us to partake in his purpose, which is to win the world to Christ. He leaves us here because it's not just that we get saved, but then we get to walk with him and we get to grow in him. And we get to go along and tell others about the Savior, and we get to be co-laborers together with Jesus himself. That is an incredible verse in the scripture, that we get to work for him, and we get to labor for him. I guarantee you, if I was God and thought the way that I still do, now, I put that in there because otherwise, if I was actually God, I'd do it the way he does it, amen? But if I was God and I thought the way I still do, I would just declare the gospel every little bit with a voice that booms with like thunder from the heavens. I would not rely on human beings to tell other human beings about me. Have you ever noticed how disobedient that we are about that? Read the New Testament. Jesus does things and he says to people, don't tell anybody about this. What do they do? They go tell everybody. He goes to heaven and he says, hey now, go tell everybody. What do we do? <laughs> We're tempted to not tell anybody. I mean, well, exactly the opposite. It's so easy for him to just do it himself. But he chooses to let us be a part of it. He chooses to let us have this purpose of displaying Christ to our world and preaching Christ to all of the world around us. And that's the joy of every Christian. So the first purpose is to display Christ to the world. The second purpose, and we see it really spelled out in these words, is to duplicate Christ's love among the brethren. How will the world know that we're his disciples? It's by our love one for another. So how do we love one another? Well, the Bible tells us here these things that we're to put on. First of all, kindness. That's a desire to contribute to the happiness of others. So if I'm going to be kind, I'm just looking for ways I can help somebody around me be happy. I'm looking to be a blessing to others. And so uh, kindness, a desire to help or to bring happiness to others. Then he tells us to put on humbleness of mind. Humility really is confidence properly placed. Humility doesn't mean that I look at myself and say, oh, I can't do anything. Humility means I look at me and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> hey, I am useful to him. Why? Because he's the one who's strengthening me. And he's the one who's chosen me. It's not a prideful thing for a Christian to say, I am useful to God. It's actually a biblical thing to say that. And it's, 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 but it's not based on me. If I start thinking it's based on me, that's pride. But when my confidence is properly placed in Christ, that's humility. So we need to have a confidence of mind, a humility of mind, that we are confidently uh, doing what we are doing for the Lord, but we're doing it being empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ, not of our own power, not of the flesh. Uh, Somebody said, in fact, Harold Vaughn said, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of the Christian people and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support, of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. You know what we need is we need a humility of mind. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to recognize everything I do that is worthwhile and good. It wasn't me. It was Christ in me who made it happen. He is the one who's glorified. It's really all about Jesus. He's the one who's high and lifted up. He's the one who's powerful. So we see kindness, uh, humbleness of mind. Notice that next word, meekness. That's gentleness. That's a, a kind or a soft disposition. That means when we meet people that uh, we're not saying, to, we're not just hammering them about everything. We can sometimes, and we're not talking about doctrinal error, but, but we can on things that, are, uh, uh, that we can, we'll just agree to disagree and we'll do it agreeably. We just have a sweetness about us. You know, it's not a, uh, a non-masculine thing for a man to have a sweet spirit. That's what we're supposed to have. Amen? Amen. We ought to be sweet people. We ought to be gentle people. We ought to care about one another deeply and genuinely. And so there's kindness. There's humbleness of mind. There's meekness. That's a sweetness of our spirit. And then there's this long-suffering. Long-suffering is patience. It's, It's not quick to harsh judgments is what it means. So in other words, we don't hear something about somebody and, oh, I can't believe they did that. But we go to that person. Say, hey, I heard this, and is this true? Is this what happened? And we we begin to deal with it in a biblical Matthew 18 manner. We're not jumping to judgment. Somebody that says something to us that maybe comes across wrong, we don't just, oh, you know what, I bet they've been probably thinking about that all day. And I bet what they really meant by that was, have you ever stayed up at night thinking about what people were thinking about you that they actually weren't thinking but you thought they were thinking? We've all done it somewhere, haven't we? And we start thinking, you know what, I bet they're thinking this, and I bet, oh, and and then I said that, and I bet they're thinking that I meant this, and and I bet they really meant that. And and all of a sudden, we work up this whole situation in our mind that really never happened. And that other person's just sleeping peacefully in their bed. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So number one, a positive disposition. How do we have it? How do we have this this joy that exudes and shows itself in kindness and and, long-suffering and humbleness of mind? How do we have this? We've got to recognize our position. We've got to respond with passion. We've got to realize our purpose and fulfill the purpose of God for our life. All right, so number one, we want to have a positive disposition. Then secondly, I see a performance of duty. So in other words, the, the, Paul is writing to the church here in Corinth, and in these verses he's saying to them, look, you need to have a, a positive, positivity about you. There needs to be something about you that's joyful and, and that just shows forth Christ all the time. But now out of that, there are still duties. There are still some, some things that we're supposed to do in the Christian life. So we can't just walk around joyful and happy, and, and to say it this way, kind of with our head in the clouds and just, oh yeah, I'm just so happy but never actually get anything done. You've heard people say that somebody's so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. That's not actually possible, but it is a phrase that you hear every once in a while. What they mean by that is they seem so joyful and happy on the outside, but they never actually get to the part of performing the duty of the Christian life. So now Paul brings them to this next step. Number one, you've gotta have a positive disposition, but number two, you've gotta have a performance of duty. So he gives them the plan in verse number 13. Here's how you carry out the duty. How do we actually live this way? By the way, here's what he's going to deal with. (laughs) Because this is really where, where the rubber meets the road of the Christian life a lot of the time. We say, all right, I'm happy, I'm joyful, I'm going to go to church and be happy. And then somebody says something that maybe we're not just taking the wrong way. Or we really do take it the wrong way, but we really take it the wrong way. And all of a sudden my joy wants to just flee. And now I want to get mad. How do we handle it then? How do we handle it when there's legitimate strife? When we have a difference of opinion and both people think that it's important and we're not willing to just give in on it and say, okay, it's not a big deal. It actually is a big deal. How do we deal with it when those times come? Because if we're going to be a church who's functioning right, those times are going to come. Amen? Amen? Sometimes somebody reads a verse and they come to a conclusion and and somebody else reads the same verse and they come to another conclusion and they both feel like it's a vitally important conclusion. What do we do? How do we deal with some of these things? So Paul comes down to verse 13. Here's the plan for it. Number one, he tells us to forbear one another. Okay, what does it mean? Forbearing is to endure something unpleasant or difficult. So here's what Paul's saying. That person who's unpleasant, That person who's difficult for you to deal with. You say, Pastor, there's nobody difficult for me to deal with. I just get along with everybody all of the time. Wonderful. All the rest of us would like to talk to you afterwards and figure out how you do that. The reality is we all have some personality that's difficult. You know, if our church grows a little bit, there's going to be some new Christians that are going to come in. And they're going to have... Have you ever found this, the gospel light attracts uh, attracts a lot of strange bugs? (laughs) Somebody's going to come in, and they're going to have an oddity about them that's going to drive you crazy. So what do you do? Well, we'll just drive them out. There's other people to reach. No, (laughs) we want to help them grow in Christ, amen. You know what you do? You forbear that person. You endure something difficult and unpleasant. Not not just a situation, but a person. And that's really what Paul's dealing with here. He's talking about these interpersonal relationships. It means to spare or to treat with indulgence or patience. That means I'm just going to indulge that person a little bit. I'm going to allow them to do something that's frustrating to me. I'm going to allow them to, to be somebody who just doesn't naturally click with my personality. And I'm going to say that's okay. Because if Jesus loves them, then he can give me the love for them. And I will love them in my love, but in his love. We're just forbearing them. It speaks to a person who has command of their temper, in other words. In other words, they don't say what they are thinking in a moment of frustration. They don't lash out and hurt somebody, but rather they forbear that person. It doesn't mean that we never say something uh, that, that hurts somebody. Sometimes somebody needs to hear something that's difficult to hear. Amen? The Bible tells us that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes we need someone to love us enough to wound us a little bit. So it's not saying we don't ever have a difficult conversation, but it's just saying that, that we have control of the temper. We're not just lashing out. We're not hurting somebody. Uh, we're still being kind. We're still being gentle, though the frustration is there in that situation. So, so we do this by forbearing, and we do this by being gentle, by being kind. This is the plan. So somebody who's difficult or a situation that is difficult, we forbear. Sometimes it goes beyond difficult, though, doesn't it? Sometimes we've actually been wrong. Sometimes it's not a personality. I mean, they have done something. And, and, and everybody from a human perspective would say, I have a right to be upset with that. You know, sometimes you hear situations either in a home or situations of, of a past and even a childhood and things that can be hard to overcome in life and problems that can arise. And people say, sometimes they'll sit and they'll say, Pastor, how can I forgive someone for that? There's no way I can ever forget it. Oh, no, no, this doesn't mean to forget. We have a wording in our culture, forgive and forget. That's not biblical. What it means is I'm no longer going to hold the grudge. I'm no longer going to hold it against that person. I'm going I'm to release it. And I'm, I'm not going to demand that they pay justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Here's what we're doing. I'm going to trust that God will do whatever is right, and he'll take care of the justice part. I'm not going to see that justice is done. I'll trust him to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it in his hands. If he thinks they need to be judged harshly, he certainly can do that. Amen? And if he decides to let them go not being judged harshly, I'll trust that he's right. But on my side, I'm no longer going to try to make sure that justice is served. I'm going to take my hands off. And I'm going to uh, choose to no longer hold that hurt and that bitterness. And I'll just let God be the one to deal with it all. You know what happens in a church somewhere along the line, something is said, something's done, somebody's hurt. And we have to choose, and this is a big part of why I pray through this passage, because we have to choose, am I going to keep that biblical revived spirit, that spirit where I'm right with God, even if it means I don't get to make sure somebody else pays for what they did to me? Am I willing to just take my hands off and say, Lord, it's yours. Whatever you do, whatever you don't do, it's up to you. And I trust you with it completely. You know, it's easy to trust God sometimes with a flat tire. It's easy to trust God with $100. Sometimes it's hard to trust him with vengeance. It's hard to trust him with judgment. Because we look at it kind of like Jonah and we say, but I knew you'd be merciful. And God says, but it's my decision. Vengeance is mine. So you, your job is to Forgive. And my job is to deal with justice. So we have to trust in that. And and we're not talking, again, just to clarify, we're not talking about if somebody does something illegal that we don't give it to the law. Amen? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about at a heart level, we're not holding the grudge, we're not holding it against that person. So here's God's plan. How do we maintain this sweet spirit? How do we maintain this life of joy and exuberance and and, and excitement? Number one, you're going to have to forbear some things. You're going to have to just get over them and just let them be there, even though they bug you. And then number two, when it's beyond that, you're going to have to forgive some things. And we all have to do both of these at different times in the Christian life and at different times as a church family. And so we have this forbearance, we have this forgiveness, and then he tells us the priority of it. This is the plan, here's the priority, verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond... Or the glue, the adhesive, of perfectness. Does that mean we're going to have an absolutely perfect church and nobody will ever bother you again if we're loving? No, no, no. The word perfect is mature, amen? So what brings us to maturity in the Christian life is the love of God. This is what brings us to a place of a mature church. This is what brings us to the place where somebody can come in and do something that bugs somebody and they can say, that's okay, I love them anyway. This is what brings us to the place we can be hurt at an emotional level. We can be hurt at a heart level. We can be hurt because somebody said something to our child that they should not have said, or whatever the case might be, no matter how deep that hurt might run, that we can say, no, no, I already have chosen to forgive that. Before the wrong was ever done, I had already decided that I would forgive the wrong because I chose that I'm going to follow God's plan. I'm going to forbear, and I'm going to forgive, and the only way I can do that is in the love of Christ. And so the love of Christ then is the priority above all these other things, above all the hurts, above all the problems, above all the frustrations, above even the kindness and the long-suffering, and above all of that, put on at the very top, the first thing, put on charity. Above all these things. So charity, the love of God, it's that overarching, overriding motivation of the Christian life. It motivates me to be long-suffering. It motivates me to forgive. It motivates me uh, to do all the things listed in this passage. I'm motivated because of his love. So my foundation for living this way is my position in Christ. He loves me, and he's chosen me, and he's set me apart for his use. That's my foundation. But then there's an overarching motivation. And that's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. See how they work together? And we get to be founded and solid. Uh, He put my feet on a solid rock. Aren't you glad when we were in the pit, he pulled us out, he put us on the solid rock, he gave us a position in Christ. Then he gives us the motivation to live for him, the love of God. We look at the cross, how could we not be motivated to live in this manner? So it's the foundation is the position in Christ. The motivation is the love of Christ. So we have to choose love. We have to then be controlled by love. Because you know what we do? We love until it comes to love or forgiveness. <laughs> and we love as long as it's easy. And the people we like, we say, Yep, I have the love of God for them. But what about that person we need to forgive or forbear? So I have to choose to love, but then I have to allow the love of Christ to be what controls my life. It's the bonding agent. It's what's in charge. It's what's binding me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that then binds me to other believers in the church. And that then binds us together into a maturity in Christ that we're not having schism. We're not having battles. We're not having frustrations. We're not upset with every little thing that gets said or done or every look that we perceive might have meant something. All that is put away because we're bound together in this love of Christ that is the overarching, overriding part of what binds us and brings us to this place of maturity. And it's all because of our position in Christ. So now, we're set free to be able to move forward. We're set free to be able to be made complete or mature or perfect by this love. So we see here, first of all, that there is a a positive disposition. It affects our outward. It affects how we live. Then we see there's the performance of duty. We've got to live it out. We can't just say, well, I did that and it didn't work. No, no, no. When it's hard, we've still got to just live it out. We've got to keep going. The performance of the duty. Number three, we're almost done, is personal development. Say, Pastor, that sounds great. My position in Christ, the love of Christ, I'm motivated to serve him. But, you know, I mean, in reality, how do you do that? Because I've been there before. ever been there? Okay, I'm going to do this this time. I'm going to stay humble. I'm going to keep serving the Lord. I'm going to keep a good attitude. And then you go home for lunch. And somebody says something, something happens. Lunch isn't what you expected. I mean, something goes on. You have a waitress who forgets to fill your water. And all of a sudden, that good attitude leaves. So how do we change it? How do we actually practically fix the problems? And I'm going to give you a couple steps. Number one, verse 15 tells us the peace of God must rule. How do you fix it? How do you make the change? You let the peace of God rule. And that means it must be allowed to make decrees in your life. That's what a ruler does. So how do I stay at peace with God by walking in the Spirit, right? Right? So now the Holy Spirit, here's what I'm doing. I'm saying, Lord, I'm giving you the place to make decrees, to make rules. I'm giving you the place and I'm asking you when I go to lunch today and somebody doesn't fill up my water on time or whatever it is for you, somebody cuts me off in traffic, Lord, would you stop me from reacting how I normally react? And when I start to react that way, when I start to to yell something at that other car that they can't even hear, Would you remind me that I'm not acting that way anymore? Would you be the one to make the rules and enforce the rules? And now we're coming and we're just saying, Lord, I want to walk in the spirit. I want to walk there consistently. And by the way, none of us does. So then we come back and we get right with God and we start walking in the spirit again. That's the Christian life. And we walk as consistently as we possibly can. And we try to be surrendered to his plan and his will and listen to his leading. And somewhere along the line, the prompting of the Holy Spirit comes and we don't obey. And usually it's several times a day. So then we come back and we say, Lord, now I didn't obey on that. I responded wrong. Would you please forgive me? And then we get up and we go on. Amen. Righteous man falls seven times, rises again. We just keep serving. We just keep going. So number one, the peace of God must rule. That means we're walking in the Spirit regularly. And consistently, God's peace demands that we not worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. So you say, well, all right, I'll do that in my attitude. I'm just worried about this, and I'm worried about that, and I'm all, I'm all stirred up about this, and I'm all well, well, hold on. You're leaving the peace of God again. It's the Holy Spirit who says, hey, don't worry. Pray about it. Quit being all stirred up about it. Quit worrying. And I tell you, just in times of transition, sometimes things get worked up in our minds, don't they? Sometimes we start trying to figure out things we can't figure out yet. We have to come back and say, Lord, would you just let your peace be what rules in my heart, in my mind? Would you help me to just walk in the Spirit? The peace of God must rule. Step number two, then, we see it in verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell. Peace of God has to rule. The word of Christ has to dwell. See, the peace of God, it cannot maintain if we're not in this book on a regular basis. We've got to be in this book enough reading it and memorizing it and placing it in our heart and making sure that we are inundated with the word of God, making sure that we're coming to this book in such a manner and in such a way that it is dwelling in us. Then the peace of God can keep ruling. So the peace of God must rule. The word of Christ must dwell. Uh, That requires meditation, memorization, and then motivation to obey. And then number uh, last, verse 17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We must abide in Christ. It's all about him. It's not about what can I do so I'm praised. It's what can I do so that he's glorified. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just abiding in him. The wording, of course, that you find in John 15. So word, whatever we say, must reflect Christ. We abide in word, then we abide in deed. Whatsoever we do needs to reflect Christ. Everything we're doing, we're just reflecting him. So you say, Pastor, what are we supposed to do this next week? Get in the word of God. Walk in the Spirit so that we are allowing the peace of God to rule in our life. You know what's going to happen if we stay in the Word of God, we're abiding in Christ, we have that peace of God ruling in our life. All of a sudden, we can't help but realize look at the position I have in Christ. And look at the love that He's starting to give me for other people. How can I help but be joyful? I can't help but have a good disposition. I can't help but go through the week and yes, things happen and frustrations come and somebody says something and, and work is frustrating and all these things happen. But in the midst of it all, how can I not be joyful when I remember Christ and what he did on the cross that he loves me and he's chosen me and I've been born and adopted into his family and then he's given me his love to spread to others and tell people the gospel and love the brethren in a right manner. How can we help be joyful, Father, we love you. We thank you for the great truths of your word. Lord, it's so vital that we live in this manner, that we have a church that has a revived spirit, an attitude that really lives out these verses. Father, we love you. Lord, we need you. We need you to give us the grace of God, the peace of God, the direction that we need in life. We need your help to live this out. None of us can do it in the flesh, only walking in the spirit. So Lord, help us to this week recognize when we step out of line with you that we might get immediately right back into line with the Holy Spirit and therefore be able to walk with the, the peace of God ruling in our hearts. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Had your bad eyes are closed. Perhaps this morning you'd say, Pastor, I, you, you spoke about knowing for sure you're on your way to heaven. I do know that for sure. I do know of a time that I received Jesus as my Savior, and according to how the Bible says to come to know Christ as Savior, I've made that decision. If that's you, would you slip your hand where I can see it all around the room? You say, yes, I've made that decision. I know for sure I'm on my way to heaven. Good, thank you for that. I appreciate that. All around the room, praise the Lord. Maybe you'd say, Pastor, I don't know that for sure. I'd like to, but I'm just not positive about that. I'd like to know for sure heaven's my home, and I guarantee you, I promise you, I won't in any way embarrass you. But we sure would love to show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that heaven will be your eternal home. If that's you, you say, I'm not sure, but I'd like to know about that. Would you just slip your hand up where I can see it? When I see it, you can put it right back down. You say, Pastor, I'd like some more information. I'd like to know heaven will be my eternal home. Would you just pray for me this morning? Anybody like that today? Maybe you say, I know I'm on my way to heaven. No doubt, I know I'm saved. But this morning, in some area, God spoke into my heart. Would you pray for me? Anybody like that? You say, Pastor, pray for me this morning. Just an uplifted hand all around the room. Good. Amen. Praise the Lord. God spoke to my heart. I need to make a decision with him. Pray for me this morning. Good. Let's all stand together. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed.